Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. So welcome to episode 16 of Middle Brow Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gane. I'm Isabel Arf. Uh, I'm starting this way because I have a gift to offer both Derek and the listeners. We've been gone for a little while. A little uh, bit. We had a couple weeks off, uh, but luckily that's given me time to find what is what I was telling Derek off- offline is perhaps the most delightful website that I've it- ever seen. <laughs> And it's not uh, it's not the website of our sponsor, Bad Dragon. At, uh, it is bad, not. Although um, they did just drop. Uh, you can get enamel pins of like their most famous uh, dildos. So if you want to do that, go for it. I'm yeah. I'm probably gonna buy one because it's so stupid. I love it. Yeah, rep your dragon dick of choice. And they're only they're only ten bucks. You can get uh, uh, a, a ho- it looks like we got a horse dick. We got a unicorn <laughs> horn. We got a tentacle. Oh, we are um, hot out of the gate today, aren't we? <laughs> we, got, we got a dog dick or a werewolf dick, I should say. Let's be clear. Werewolf dick. Two different dragon dicks and a <laughs> uh, a dragon vagina. Dragina. Yes. Because uh, they make like flush, flush lights, but with dragons. Sure. Because, I mean, that's that's a market. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been on the internet long enough to know that is 100% a market. And... Er, no one innovates like Bad Dragon. But no one innovates like Bad Dragon. Yes, it's not it's not the Bad Dragon website, but it's uh, something called Nature's Designs Online. Uh, everyone, you can Google that if you want. Uh, I'm going to read you from the ho- from the front page. Uh, there's a lot more pages on it. I'm also going to read you just excerpts because the full thing is like five thousand words long. But uh, here we'll get you we'll get you started so you can learn what this website's all about. Is this Derek. Nature's Designs. Nature's Designs. So, welcome to Nature's Designs. What we offer. Reproductions of bald eagles and golden eagles that are lifelike and animated, taxidermy peacocks, white peacocks, roosters, and hens, other beautiful reproductions, including peacocks, swans, rocking horses, sheep benches, and black panthers, also called replicas or recreations. And here's the twist. Very accurate replica of a Roman cat of nine tails, as well as realistic crucifixion nails and a crown of thorns. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. <laughs> Took a hard left turn towards the end, didn't it? I mean, that, I mean, I'm already of the opinion that taxidermy is kind of weird, but that's <laughs> wait, an authentic Roman cat of nine tails and crucifixion nails. Um, like if you're really, get- if you really want to get into that Jesus cosplay boy, we're gonna get into that a different day because oh uh, that's that that page is also wonderful and delightful, and that page is uh, just to be clear, <laughs> warning number one: this page is not for sissies, cowards, or those who are easily offended. Um, oh man. We'll get there later. For today, I want to tell you um, about uh, you're an eagle collector, right, Derek? Would you consider yourself an eagle collector? Uh, eagles, uh, eagles, falcons, crows, um, hummingbirds, tits, the whole nine. <laughs> well, attention, eagle collectors, patriotic Damn. freedom lovers, wildlife enthusiasts, and screaming eagle Harley dealers. At oh last, shit, that's you, all me. <laughs> you can now own a legal screaming bald eagle. 
The reason my eagle eagles are legal to own and sell is because they are reproductions made from a variety of poultry feathers and polymers. They are so real looking that in 1995, two fish and game officers actually confiscated one in Alexandria, Virginia, believing it was a real eagle. They took it to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. for testing. The late Roxy Laybourne, who pioneered feather identif identification, confirmed that it was indeed just a good reproduction made of poultry feathers. Of course, the officers returned the legal eagle to the owner without apologies, or with apologies. If you own one of Joel Donahoe's eagle reproductions, you do not need to be afraid of fishing game officers hassling you. They are aware of my realistic life-life reproductions now. This is so specific and weird. <laughs> um, so we're going to skip a little bit ahead um, uh, because there's a lot more. Oh, um, if you liked that little story about the fishing game officers confiscating one of his eagles because it was so real, you're in luck because he repeats that on every single fucking page of his website. Oh, man. Even in his uh, advertisement for the Cat of Nine Tales, he repeats that that story. Um, it's like, but hey, hey, do you want to accurately flog someone as the Romans flogged the Christ? Hey, awesome. Also, do you want this eagle that's so lifelike the 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 fucking G men are going to be on you for it? Well, you're you're in luck. Oh man. As far as I know, I am the only one, meaning of competitors who also make eagle reprodu reproductions. I am the only one who makes an animated eagle reproduction besides Hollywood animators that is capable of moving so lifelike it can fool an audience into believing they are watching a real live trained eagle up on stage. Okay, Even time out. Yes. These are these are yes. animatics? No, no. They are I mean not animatics, but these are like these animatronics? are like animatronics? Well, he, we'll get to that more in depth later on, but yes, some of them their heads do move. Some of them I think their wings might move, but it's very unclear. Because he seems to be weaving in and out as to um, whether or not these are articulated. But, I mean, even Hollywood animators cannot pull you off without camera tricks and retakes. As my animated eagles answers yes and no questions correctly with a shake or a nod of the head, people are captivated at first. Some even start to realize something is fishy. Real eagles can't understand English. The trainer must be giving the eagle some sort of signal. Crowds are always delighted to discover the magician's secrets and amazed to find out that it is a legal animated eagle reproductions made from just poultry feathers. I don't think that counts as magic. Like, no, that's not that's a magician's a secret that you bought, like, a mechanical bald eagle reproduction. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, this is a mechanical Turk. This is literally what a mechanical Turk is. Yeah. Um, but, so I'm Also, also yes. crucifixion nails. I'm as in, like, a, as an impulse item. Because I well, the crucifixion nails are by far the cheapest thing. Because we will get to prices at the end of this, but um. Oh my god! So this is the this is the last paragraph I'm going to read because there's so much more. But I really need to keep myself under control. So, <laughs> even, and I love this next sentence. I really like when I saw this sentence. I I was so overjoyed to be able to tell you this sentence, Derek. So okay, even though my animated eagles are pathetic child's play compared to God's, I keep trying my. <laughs> I keep trying my best to imitate his work. Big mood. That is such oh a delightful Lord. sentence. That I, I, and then he goes on to talk about how eagles are actually, uh, God loves eagles, and they're a metaphor for uh, human existence. So how, so how much do you think this costs? Okay, I'm going to assume, okay, so it's like a kind of polymer Billy Bass American eagle. That you can use as a mechanical Turk. With poultry feathers. With poultry it. feathers. I'm going to say... I'm going to say $1,500. Oh, Derek. Oh, Derek. <laughs> am I, so, I'm either way too low or way too high. 
you do not you are not in the market for eagles clearly because okay. if you did you would know that uh for a legal eagle without animation so just like the prop just the prop it is uh $3500 holy shit for an eagle with an animated head that's $4000 and then it's $4500 for animated heads with opening mouth and loud screaming capabilities i don't know why that's necessary i feel like you could if you're already going to the all the trouble of acquiring this eagle can't you just pipe in sound from somewhere else probably but also i feel like a thousand dollars to have a moving mouth and a voice box is a lot (laughs) it's a Uh, lot of markup well it's only five thousand dollars for flying (laughs) for flying eagles without remote control i don't know what that means is the problem and he doesn't explain it ever does that mean that the wings move that's my instinct, but the way he's saying it is that, check it out, if you flip the switch, this motherfucker flies. Like a bird. <laughs> so, like... Like... Oh, man. I love that it doesn't have a remote control either, so, like, fuck you if you wanted to turn it off. You have to, like, approach the <laughs> eagle, and I guess maybe there's, like, a, a switch in its its belly? Or, like, somewhere else? There has to be a switch on it, or else it just flies forever. I I don't know what that means, and there's nothing on his website that would tell me what it fucking means. So (sighs) that's uh the begin. That's our first dalliance with uh, Joel Donahoe. We'll be back because, like I said, his website is delight, and I recommend everyone go there and buy as many things as you can. I feel like we're gonna get a lot of mileage just out of the Roman cat of nine tails. It's the longest part of his website, for what it's worth. Yeah, don't say. (laughs) Um. Uh, but the you can get the Crown of Thorns and the Crucifixion Nails for only 35 bucks total. So, not bad, honestly. How, man, how many nails in the set? Four? Um, two. Just two? Just two. But they are authentic. Authentic re-what? Reproduction. Authentic reproductions. Um, well, he, he actually goes into pretty deeply how he researched this. And it's... Oh, man. It's not how like a, like a human would research something, but it is how Joel researches things, and uh, uh, we will get to it. Don't worry. Oh, man. Oh, God. Uh, like, so This means that, like, this is episode 16. That means by the time you reach episode 50, we're going to have, we're going to be talking about some people who get, like, actual literal ass crucified. That's the I way don't, this is going. I actually don't think that's what this is about. Although we can talk about Chris Burden at a later point. We can talk about I'm, his, I'm, his I'm fa- art piece uh, fami- where he got crucified to a VW bug. Yeah, I'm familiar with the work of one uh, of one Chris. Was it Chris? No. What did you say his name was? Chris Burden. Chris Burden. I was going to say Chris Marker, even though I just heard it. But yes, Chris Burden, <laughs> the guy who nailed himself to a beetle. Yeah. Uh, um, but we're not here th- to talk about performance art today, are we? Um, but instead, just the art of performance. The art of performance, yes. Uh, because uh, on this show, Middle Brown Madness, we don't always talk about weirdly specific uh, like online retailers who, for some reason, feel as if their reproductions of creation are piss poor compared to God's. <laughs> Sometimes we talk about movies. I, I respect <laughs> that humility, but yes. Ah, oh, man, the notion that you shouldn't make anything because it already exists is weird. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, oh, man, that depleted me in a strange way. So uh, what what do we do on this on this on this website, on this podcast podcast? Well, this podcast is hosted on a website that you can visit at noisespace.xyz, our show, other shows. 
But uh, no, what we do is we talk about movies, specifically the Internet Movie Database's top 250 movies of all time. Uh, we've put all of those movies plus uh, six uh, ringers, uh, six bonus movies that, uh, that me and Isabel have added. And we've uh, put them in a giant single elimination bracket, and we will, through through trial and error, through 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 courage and, and grit, and uh, many many hours spent on the couch watching movies, we'll figure out which one is the best movie of all time. Asterisk, uh, the best movie on this list that is. Um, so this is episode sixteen, which means at the end of this, we're going to be officially one quarter of the way up, uh, up our bracket. Which is both galvanizing and depressing in equal amounts. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna be at this for a while, but we've already been at it for a little while as well. Yeah. Um. So today, as with all the all of our other episodes, we're going to talk about two matchups involving two movies. Uh, the winners of which will face each other in round two. So uh, let's get right at it. So our first matchup for the day, uh, the one hundred and twenty-six. Well, I should actually just say what the matchups are. So today's matchups are going to be The Great Escape versus Chinatown and Godfather Part 2 versus Perfect Blue, which is the first of my ringers. Uh, so yeah, let's just jump right into it. So our first matchup today, the favorite, the 126th seed, The Great Escape, released in 1963, directed by John Sturgis, written by James Clavell and W.R. Burnett, based on the novel of the same name by Paul Brickhill, starring Steve McQueen, James Garner, Richard Attenborough, and Charles Bronson. Uh, let's see. Ba -ba -ba -ba. That is wild that that's the favorite there. Well, not it's not much, the favorite by still. a lot. Um, so yeah, and, uh, it was a pretty decent hit, $11.7 million in box office and $1963 on a $3.8 million budget, and went zero for one at the Academy Awards that year. Uh, the nomination was for editing against the 131 seed, the, uh, the underdog but not by a lot, Chinatown, released in 1974, directed by Roman Polanski, written by Robert Towne, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Hillerman, Perry Lopez, Burt Young, and John Huston. Uh, also a hit, $29 million take on a $6 million budget. Went 1 for 11 at the Academy Awards that year because that was the year of Godfather Part Two, which we'll get to. And uh, that one win was Robert Town for Best Original Screenplay. So, The Great Escape. <laughs> what a I fucking movie. I'm glad I <laughs> I'm glad we're getting this out of the way because we uh we're going to record a few like we're going to record a couple episodes today, right? And yep. this is three the, whole episodes. Three whole episodes and this is by far the worst movie that we've watched for yeah. the three episodes that we're going to record today. Everything else is like good to incredible. This is the mm -hmm. one that is like, oh boy. <laughs> we really had to sit through that, huh? Yeah, and um so <laughs> Someone asked, finally asked the question, what if the bridge over the River Kwai was, like, worse, but just as long? Yeah. <laughs> what if the Luftwaffe were good, actually? God fucking damn it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> should we just start oh, with that God. part of it? Should we just start no, no, with no. that part? No, no, no. Okay. no, no. We're going to do some setup. We're going to do some okay. setup, and then we'll get to that. Then we'll get to that. If you're not familiar, The Great Escape is about a great escape. It's about uh, Brit British POWs. Uh, who are in a German camp, and these POWs uh, are specifically there because they're the best escape artists in the game. They're really good at escaping like prison camps, and uh, for some reason, uh, one might say, uh, in in a, uh, a tactically dubious move, uh, the Germans have decided to put 
uh, in the words of uh, the guy who runs the place, all of the rotten eggs in one basket. But then you also have a couple hundred guys whose expertise is getting the fuck out of a prison camp. <laughs> oh, um, boy. So the and so it's all these British dudes. So you've got your classic sort of Alec Guinness esque stiff upper lip shit, and you've got like one sort of you know dewy faced, doe eyed American played by Steve McQueen who's just kind of there. You've got like sort of a you've got uh, an agoraphobic pole played by Charles Bronson, whose uh, specialty is digging tunnels. Ha ha, get it? And uh, just uh, just a bunch of like sort of. You know, a bunch stately, of people you would know. A bunch of people you would know, you know, like Richard Attenborough, fucking James Garner. I mean, it's got a pretty deep bench, but it's like just a lot of dudes talking about how good they are at fucking escaping. How good they are at fooling. Okay, let's get right into it. Okay. Let's get right into it. Okay, so it's a movie about these guys planning an escape. It's like three hours long. It shouldn't be that long. An escape um, from a World War II prison camp. For like, World War II prison that's camp. That's very important to emphasize. Yes. And... One thing I will say about this is I like I like the darker turn that the last third of the movie takes because the first two thirds of this are like weirdly jaunty. Yes, like yes. it's like it the way the movie and the this was made nineteen sixty three. So like we had some distance from the war, but the the tone that it strikes for the first couple hours is supremely weird. Mm. It's like these guys aren't in a POW camp; they're 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 at summer camp. Yeah, yeah, and some some of the uh, some of the camp counselors are, are sure are meanies. Yeah, the camp um, counselors just also happen to be members of the uh, the Luftwaffe. Yeah, um, they and they never call them Nazis, not once. No, which is which is super weird. Well, let, let's get into this. So apparently, Derek wasn't aware of this, but there's a whole thing in uh, conservative ideology where they're like, multiple people have claimed this that the Luftwaffe weren't actually that bad because they didn't like Hitler and they were against what Hitler wanted to do, but they just had to follow orders, which is already the worst excuse. Like <laughs> I was just following orders is literally like what got multiple people sent to like prison for life in like the Nuremberg trials. So not great, but like yes. the fact that in this movie, the, the leader of this camp is explicitly positioned as being like, Oh, I wish I could be nice to these people, but you know, it's Hit Hitler's breathing down my back. It's very like a workplace comedy almost. Kind of. And I don't want to be controversial here, Derek, but I am going to say something that might ruffle some feathers. All right. I think the Luftwaffe also suck and were definitely <laughs> Nazis and should have died. Well, they were the they were the uh, they were the Air Force branch of the of the, yeah, of the Nazi like, party. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty damning. <laughs> like I think being any branch of the Nazi party is not a good look. Not a good uh, look. But especially, like, the whole claim that, oh, there's certain people in war who are just doing what they can, unless – the fact that there are some people who have not done that, there have been conscientious objectors, there have been people who have fled their country when they don't believe in a war, there are people who have fought against their country and been in resistance movements. The fact that anyone gets a pass because they may have been ordered to do something they disagree with is preposterous, but it's also kind of what a lot of the sympathies of this movie hinge on. Um, yeah. Um, like, all right. So we got the we got the big thing out of the way. A lot of this movie is just kind of dull. Yeah, I it's, mean, it does not need to be 173 minutes. That is ridiculous. And um, I, do, I mean, what I do like about this movie is like I like I like the minutia of the digging of the tunnel. I like mm -hmm. their weird kind of intricate 
the way that they use their in, they they establish like an intricate um, signal system that is never explained. So it just looks like a bunch of non sequiturs happening, and I think that's like uh, an ancillary high point for me. It, it's, um, it's the fun of watching a really good heist movie. It's the fun of watching a heist movie, except it's it's a reverse heist movie because you're breaking out instead of breaking in. Yeah. Um. And like a like the la- the last sequence, whenever they're going through the tunnel out of the camp, is thrilling. It's nerve wracking. It's a it's a good thriller sequence. I guess I kind of checked out at that point by them already, but um, I agree that it is one of the better parts of the of the film. But I just I had completely divested emotionally from the movie already. Like from the time that they start escaping through the tunnel to the end of the movie, I think is pretty solid. It has like the I think gravitas, it's, it's the best part of the movie. I think it has like the gravitas something like this should have. It has the best sort of performances and color and like a real palpable sense of danger uh, as opposed to like the first half of the film, which is like, oh, uh, watch out for the goons. It's like they call them goons, (laughs) which is like, it's like, dog, come on. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And what what is Steve McQueen supposed to be doing here? Steve McQueen is supposed to put butts in seats, I think. (laughs) Is he even doing that? Because like, okay, I've I'm looking. I don't. I think I don't think I've seen any other Steve McQueen movies. I have not. I've never seen Bullet. Never seen Magnificent Seven. Um, you you've 100 seen The Blob. Okay, you're right. Okay, so I've seen The Blob, but I don't remember him in it very much. And what I will say is that Steve McQueen is the most boring actor I've maybe ever seen, <laughs> based on just The Great Escape. I am making no other claims about the rest of his his filmography. But holy fuck, he does. I mean, I described him to you as discount Paul Newman, but discount even Paul that's Newman, being. Yeah incredibly generous in my opinion um maybe, maybe he's better elsewhere but he has no or at least to me he has no charisma he has no special affect he 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 looks he seems special- like 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 someone's dad but like not an interesting dad this is not like a fun th- weed dad or this is like just like someone's dad i think his affect here is just sort of you know all american which is not that sucks so which hard. is kind of dull <laughs> So I don't know. I like I haven't seen Bullet, which is bullshit because I feel like of all people I should have seen Bullet. <laughs> yeah, very. I could definitely see it as being a heavy Derek movie. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna but, I'm not gonna cast any like sort of I'm not gonna cast a wide net on my um, I'm not gonna have a big Steve McQueen take. But and, and I, I think like that in '63 the idea of all American is, was even more stifling than what it is now. Where it's yeah. like a white guy who's kind of boring, who's toned in. He's like he's like athletic in the way that you're athletic in the '60s, where like yeah, you your pants look kind of too big for you. Like he's that's real scrawny. What he is, yeah. It's it's a very weird thing to think back and th- and see. Oh, people really cared about this. People were interested in this and affected by it. And this got butts and seats. I'm just not entirely. I, I'm not sure how to be frank. Um, but then you have like Charles Bronson doing awful. I mean, I didn't, I didn't some, I didn't mind Charles Bronson so much. He's like doing a bit, a bit like, that you can't even seem to commit to is the problem. Like I don't even know what a Polish accent is supposed to sound like. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's that actually literally might be a slight difference because like I grew up in Chicago. I knew a lot of Polish people. People like people literally from Poland, so I know right. what a Polish accent sounds like. And I the first time I heard Charles Bronson, I thought he was supposed to be like. I thought it was a, um, what do you call it, Once Upon a Time in America, and he was totally in brown face and doing, like, a really weird, like, Mexican accent or a really weird, like, black accent. You know what I mean? That's what it seemed like to me at first. Because Charles Bronson is of Lithuanian descent, so maybe he's doing, like, a kind of, like, generic Eastern European thing. Maybe. I don't – either way, didn't didn't work for me. Is it eh. 
genuine question. Is there anything else in the movie that worked for you besides what we already talked about? Is there anything else that worked for me other than what we talked about already? Um, I... <laughs> Uh, I do, I I do like the the like the 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 theme, like the the theme from The Great Escape. It's very jaunty. Does not belong in this fucking movie. <laughs> yes. Um, God. But Just... uh, yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, it was fine. A lot of it was dull, but a lot of it was kind of thrilling too. Um, why why this is above Chinatown? I don't know. <laughs> Or why this – I'm interested in why people think that this holds up because the thing about the IMDb Top 250 is it's not just classic movies. Uh, people who are voting on it are generally speaking younger. These are mm-hmm. movies that theoretically hold up to them that are still interesting to them. It's not like The Great Escape is a legendary movie like Citizen Kane where it's always going to be on there. Like no well, one's really no one's really saying, hey, Citizen Kane, The Great Escape is one of like the greatest movies of all time. You know what I'm saying? Like no like popular critic nowadays is saying that. I think a lot of it is received knowledge. Like, because if you're, if you're like one strata of film fan, there's not, there's two ways to look at a movie. There's, ah, this is what one of the great movies is supposed to be. And also, why the fuck is this considered one of the best movies? It's something like Shawshank, where it's like, this is like consensus, the best film of all time. Like, there's two ways to look at something like Shawshank. There's like, okay, so this is consensus, the best movie of all time on the Internet Movie Database. So that's that's my yardstick versus what the fuck is this doing in number one? And I think it's just two different two different approaches. And we, as, like, critics and thinkers and writers, go for that second approach a lot of the time. That's but interesting. I, think I, 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 like that, I like that explanation because you're basically saying that, like, some people get their kind of like critical apparatus from the received wisdom of certain things having been great, whereas like other people approach it from the other side of like, there's things I already like, and I know what I like, and I want to develop that, and I want to develop things I know, but I can tell when I see something like, that's not good, even if the consensus is that it is good. So that that, that's my instinct. Yeah. No, I think that, that I th- maybe The Great Escape has just been culture in the cultural conversation long enough that people watch it knowing it's supposed to be a great movie and adjust themselves based on that. Like you had told me in the Slack that this is like a this is like a Christmas movie in the UK. Yeah, which is wild. Well, it is about UK POWs, like British POWs escaping a German camp. Which okay, but not cool, during Christmas. But not during Christmas. Uh I, I feel like uh I feel like a Merry, a Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence would be a more apropos choice, but Maybe it's a little. That's a little too artsy fartsy for Christmas. I was like, that's a little too weird for. Uh, that's a little too gay for. I think uh, mainstream British acceptance. Fucking throw that on while you're having. Uh, I don't know what the fuck the Brits eat for for Christmas. Fucking bangers and mash, uh, meat pie, to- toad in the hole. Pie. Who knows? To- toad in the hole. Fucking the toes of urchins. I don't know. Uh, a toast sandwich. <laughs> a toast. All oh, right, toast sandwiches. Yeah, are I was gonna say thing, that's right? a real thing. Yeah, I remember because like real ass food. I remember that that Ross had never Ross, our British friend, had never heard of this thing, and it was like my Ross. favorite joke about like British food is that a toast sandwich is a sandwich made with two thick slices of bread in which the filling is a thin slice of toasted bread. Ross oh, is boy. the worst Brit ever because he doesn't know jack shit about British food yeah. or soccer or or anything you would like think to be like. If I'm I sure ask like get- the British British cultural consensus on anything, he's not going to be able to give it to me. No. Like, I literally more about the Premier League than Ross, and I don't even follow the Premier League. Like, I really want to know what the British think of, like, the Roman invasion of, like, Britain and, like, what they think of the Picts and what they think of, like, 
actual like native British resistance against the Romans and things like that because they've. I'm basing this all off of Centurion, which is a movie about that essentially, and it seemed weird to me that like the heroes were essentially the guys I would usually think of as the bad guys. But fucking Ross doesn't know enough, and I don't know enough British people that ask for like feedback on this. So if you're British, contact us. Tell us how you feel about the Romans. Tell us how you feel about Hadrian's Wall. I like that we spent just a whole 75 seconds just bagging on Ross's cultural knowledge of his home country. <laughs> he knows he probably knows more about America than me, to be fair. <laughs> Uh, speaking of America with a capital A, Chinatown. That's in China. Well, every major American city's got a Chinatown, baby. It's, uh, that was it's a, a bad joke. joke. Uh, yeah, yeah, now I'm like thinking about it. That was not, I could do better than that. I'm, di- I'm disappointed Probably. for their audience and for me. So, hey, it's the best day to go into something in. Now, the but last yes, thing I want, the last Chinatown. thing I want to, what's that? I was going to say, oh, oh, I was going to say at least I'm better than Roman Polanski as like a human being. So. Sure. I mean, here, here's the thing. Not hard we to hear- be. We're here at Middlebrow Madness. Take no pleasure in, um, in, uh, in in praising and giving plaudits to uh, monstrous men, <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes you gotta. And I mean, I think something that uh, Chris pointed out is that this movie was made before uh, Roman Polanski uh, raped a um, underage child. girl. So yeah, uh, yeah child. So uh, I don't know if that changes my arithmetic <laughs> greatly, but uh, it's a thing. Yeah, watching this, knowing what ha- what would happen is like is like, weird, right? Yeah, Roman Polanski is a a monster, but also b a very very troubled human being. <laughs> yes. So and um, I think uh, that's uh, it's it's that all that oh, we're gonna just talk about Roman Polanski for a bit before we get to Chinatown. Sure. Chinatown Chinatown wins. Sorry, but um, uh, oh, one hundred percent, no yeah. question. Um, but the difficult thing about Polanski that I've always found because his life has sucked oh 100 percent across the board like uh he i'm correct in saying he grew up in world war ii and like was hidden by like his parents right or something like that something like that um either way had a very bad time there uh as most people did during world war ii um and uh he was uh yeah in the krakow ghetto which is uh fucking bad you know we're not gonna we're not gonna rank the ghettos it's still not it's it's that's that's bad. <laughs> yes, that's bad. And then um obviously Sharon Tate is his pregnant his wife who was pregnant at the time was murdered by members of the Manson family. Oh um, my lord. And, and then he makes Chinatown. Then he makes Chinatown. <laughs> and uh, uh God. It's this is why it's difficult to talk about him because he's clearly a great filmmaker. I don't think I'm I'm saying anything controversial in saying he's a great filmmaker who has done some uh, at least one absolutely at least terrible one thing really that he's reprehensible thing that he's never actually like owned oh, up to I- and uh like what do you call it um re- received any kind of punishment for essentially i mean no uh, i mean like like i was going to say maybe being fucking exiled maybe fucking being functionally exiled to europe forever is punishment in itself but it's not it, I mean, it hasn't nice. really it hasn't even really hurt his film career Nah, he's still making movies. Yeah, still to this day, and people are still in him. And so I mean, people I guess, are still in him. I we don't have time to get into this. I should say, like I just said, uh-huh. I I'm clarifying myself here for a second. Um, I did say he hasn't been punished, which I think is not actually the best way to look at how we deal with crimes and how we deal with um improper and like evil acts in terms of punishment versus and and in terms of punishment and retribution in prison systems. But my point is that he's never actually like received any serious consequences from. Doing something really awful. 
Like you're talking about punitive stuff versus uh, rehabilitation or whatever. Yes. And as okay. far as I know, besides like the slight psychiatric evaluation he did before um, fleeing, I, yeah. I am <laughs> not aware of any other attempts to make things better he has done, attempt to make things right, attempt to grow and learn or even admit the things he's done wrong, uh, which would go a long way towards me being a little bit more accepting of what he's gone through, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and also, this is probably one of like, correct me if I'm wrong, you hadn't seen Chinatown before, right? I had not. I'd never, I, it's one of those things that would always been on my, uh, my list, especially since I saw Los Angeles plays itself, where it plays a big role, but, um, uh, have not seen it. And, and, and that, and like, like the, the specter of Roman Polanski, as it were, was probably one of the reasons for that too. Oh, certainly. The same reason okay. I haven't seen, uh, The Pianist yet. I haven't seen a lot of his films. So, um, but we have seen this one. And I, I, I feel like we should point out, in addition, that an endorsement of this movie being fucking baller and amazing and literally one of the greatest films ever made is not an endorsement of the dude who made it. Yeah. And and, and stars in it. We not do not stars, have enough a, time in, in these episodes to actually get into the question of separating the art from the artist or like what it actually means to praise a film by an awful human being. But we're going to do the coward the cowardly thing and the simpler thing and put it aside for a second and say this movie fucking rules. Chinatown is it fucking amazing. kicks so much ass and it's so good. <laughs> I, I think that the, the, it brings the me no that, pleasure to say this, but it rocks. <laughs> the thing that I uh, pointed out in my letterbox review of it is that everyone, even if you've never seen this movie, you know the end of it. You know the twist. You know how it ends. You know basically the you know, you know most of the movie to be honest. And I expected yeah, it's, getting. It's, it's like the your neo noir. Yeah, this is it. And it was. I expected the ending to be interesting and to work and to be like, okay, I see what's go- what's going on there. Like, I get why this was really impactful. But by the end of the film, that ending really like was like a punch to the gut, and it really knocked the wind out of me. Which is weird when I knew exactly what was coming. I knew even the rhythms of the acting. I knew the rhythms of the line delivery. I knew exactly what was coming. But it's such a it's despairing such a ending. And I think the reason it it is so despairing and it hurts so much is because um, Jake, um, the uh, main character played by Jack, Jack Nicholson, who's uh, investigating a lot of things, it turns out, uh, a lot of things he has to investigate. Yeah. Um, the thing that separates him from a regular noir protagonist, uh, at least in my view, um, and I think like uh, Ewart said something similar to this, in, is that where someone like uh, Sam Malone is like, he's jaded, he doesn't really have hope anymore. He's just like this really cool guy who exists. Sure. Whereas Jake, he's not going to tell you he does and he's not going to show he does, but he clearly has some amount of hope and some amount of faith and some amount of ethics and morals and things he wants to have happen because he thinks they're the right thing to do. Yeah, he's a bit of a he's a bit of a romantic with a capital R. Yes. That, you know, he he believes that things can be right and that justice can be served. But and at the end nah. of the film is like, nope. Rich people nope, sorry, bud. already own the police. They already own everything. There's nothing you can do. Even if you have all the facts, you have, you've tried to set everything right. You have everything you should have, but it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't shake out. It Which just is a doesn't devastating thing to watch. And it's uh, especially like knowing the, how the knowing- law works in this country and knowing like so much of how things actually function in America and knowing that that's a, probably a pretty accurate view of the law for yeah. the vast majority of people. Is, uh, I mean that hasn't changed no. in like the fifth in the fifty years since it's been released. It hasn't really even improved. Like we have more people in prison now than we ever have. So, 
Ah, uh, man. The, the, the water in Los Angeles is still dog shit. <laughs> yeah. There's still droughts. There's still Nestle is dying. bleeding everything dry. Yeah. Ah! Water is not a human right, as multiple people have claimed, apparently, which is uh. one of the most depressing statements a human being can say, I think. But Water, water everywhere, but not an ounce to drink. So yeah, it's a bummer of a movie, but it also no, owns. It is. Yeah, it owns bones. It's like one of the great 70s bummer endings. Um, I mean, what more can we say? I mean, Robert Town's script fully deserved that Academy Award. It's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. And not just it, it, not just in the sort of uh, in the um, in like the and not even just being in the in its version of like the hard boiled vernacular. It's just it's it, it 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 strings together everything so nicely, so tightly. Um, it's fucking devastating. Everyone's acting their ass off. It's it looks gorgeous. The score is amazing. It's perfect. John Huston as Noah Cross is like the the most evil villain the you could imagine. Like, Just the fuck. worst dude. And, and yeah, it's so tragic. Every like it's and it's like that from like frame one. It's like you know this will not shake out for anyone. And it's almost like to Jake's failure that he hasn't fully accepted that yet. Yeah, if 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 he had gotten his damn his damn heart and his damn hopes out of it, probably would have shook out okay. But no. Um, uh, shout out to Faye Dunaway, who's like devastating in this movie. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, oh god. I think we already said it. This wins over uh, the Great Escape as if it oh, wasn't 100%. clear from the way we're talking about it. Even with the specter of Plansky, which we will deal with the next time I'm sure we talk about this, and the we will continue to deal with. On, uh, we'll continue to deal with we'll the to deal entire with. time that we. Uh, do this podcast because a lot of bad people have made a lot of good movies. A lot of bad people have made lots of good movies. That's the that's the uh, that's the awful truth, baby. <laughs> oh god, that's the most despairing baby. Uh, so, All right, so should we move on to a matchup in the next round? Well, I to to my knowledge, these two dudes are not bad. Yeah, as far as I'm one aware, the- although, although we'll get to Coppola, I have uh, one particular issue with him that I need to. Uh, Vent my spleen on. Vent your spleen? Yeah. Is this is this not a that's a, a, a phrase for other people? That that might be a Midwest thing. <laughs> no, like you vent one. Well, they, vent my there's vent a, your there's, spleen. There's a pavement lyric which uh which references it. Where you said that I vent my spleen at the Lord. It means to voice one's anger. No, I understand that, but I've le- literally never heard that phrase. Hold on, I'm. Maybe it's an American thing. Maybe. I'm looking up on the... Let's see. Yeah, Frank Coppola, maybe not a bad dude, but definitely has made a lot of questionable decisions with the people involved in his projects. Yes, which we will get to. Oh, Lord. Okay, so... so, I uh, I cannot find any more information about where the etymology of this term is. But if you you have heard of the term venting your spleen, leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Yeah, sound off uh, where you can give us a thumbs up. Yes. Um, but next, our second, yeah, second matchup. We have uh, Godfather Part Two versus Perfect Blue. So, Tale of the Tape, the three seed. That's one, two, three. The highest ranked film we've done so far. Godfather Part Two. 
released in 1974, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, based on the novel The Godfather by Mario Puzo, starring uh, Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, and Robert De Niro. $50 million take on a $13 million budget, and a 6 out of 11 at the Academy Awards. So this is a movie that won all the Academy Awards that uh, Chinatown didn't win. Uh, Against... Um, against uh, the underdog, the 253 seed and the first of my ringers, Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kon, written by Sadayaki Murai, uh, based on the novel by Yoshikazu Takeuchi, starring Junko Iwao, Rika Matsumoto, Shiho Niyama, and uh, from what from what Wikipedia tells me, a $770,000 take on a $690,000 budget. So that's, barely that's breaking profit. even. That's technically profit. That's a profit. That's technically a profit, uh, but not uh, not not a uh, 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 not an era defining hit in the way that Godfather Two was. Correct. So let's talk about Godfather Two then. We're talking just by by uh, by luck of the draw. We're talking about Godfather Two before we're talking about the Godfather, which is further up the bracket. Mm-hmm. Because I think all of Francis Ford Coppola's nineteen seventies movies are on this list. Is the conversation? I th- on it? I want to say yes. I would love that because it's one of my favorite films, but I mean. It's not. Fuck. Oh, so but the best of his 70s movies is not on this list. Oh, well. I think you I have weird. Be to right. be fair, I have weird opinions about Francis Ford Coppola, so. Uh, no, I think I think if you were to lay out Godfather, Godfather 2, Conversation, and Apocalypse Now, I think I like the conversation the best out of those four. But yeah. those are those are all yes. Uh, to be clear, all movies. four of those are very good films. By saying, "Oh, well, I'm what I'm going to say right now is that I think I wouldn't put either Godfather movie in my top five of Francis Ford Coppola movies." But he's made a lot of really fucking good movies. So it's not to say that they're bad movies in any way. Like there's these four. He had a pretty f- like fecund period in the '80s with Outsiders and Rumblefish. I know some people go to bat for one from the heart. Um, Tucker, and the Man in the Stream. I really like that film a lot. Uh, you've recommended that to me as quote a very Derek movie. Yes, very much so. Um, and uh, then there's this sort of you know his his small scale weird new century era stuff with so like Tetro and Twixt, and um, and now everyone's uh, everyone's sort of uh, foaming at the mouth for Megalopolis, hoping that that actually sees the light of day one day. Yeah, but you yeah, know, Twixt, uh, Twixt is one of my favorite movies ever. I think it's uh, Friends for Coppola's best film, but uh, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Now, because we're talking about The Godfather Part Two, yes, we which are. Inci- which incidentally is a pretty good fucking movie. Yeah, you can say the that. First, I, I would agree with that. the The first sequel ever to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and probably the last, if we're being honest. Oh no, 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 no! Pro- I lied. Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. That's right. That's a sequel as well. Um, yeah, the only two uh, franchises where every one of their movies was nominated for Best Picture are The Godfather and The Lord of the Rings. Wait, was Godfather Part Three? Uh, I think it was nominated for Best Picture. No, that's that's don't talk crazy, Derek. Hold I'm on. just quoting Wiki. I'm just quoting Wikipedia. I'm I'm logging on. Yeah, it was uh, nominated for seven Academy Awards. Even though now pretty much everyone is like, "Oh, it's terrible." Hey, um, to be fair, yeah, I, I've so, never yeah. seen The Godfather Part Three because I don't have patience in general. It's got a bad reputation. Yeah. Um, um, and as but, much as I love Sofia Coppola as a director, I've heard she's not a good actress. Well, you've seen Rumblefish, right? She's in that. I have she not, She has, like, actually. a little bit part. Oh, it's a good-ass movie. 
I, that's it's. Uh, I keep meaning to pick up the uh, Criterion. Great, great Mickey Rourke performance, and I, yeah, good Mickey, uh, good Mickey Rourke performance. Uh, anyway, Godfather Part yes, Two. Godfather Part Two. Um, obviously, sequel to the Godfather. So, whereas Godfather was the Marlon Brando show, more or less, this is the Al Pacino show, co-starring Robert De Niro. Uh, Robert De Niro plays a young uh, Don Vito Corleone. Um, his, so his come up. Uh, his origin story. So yeah, this is functionally an origin story for the Corleone family, uh, running parallel with um, with uh, Al Pacino's current running of the Corleone family, and um, it's fucking great. It's this bummer, uh, character-driven, painterly drama, much in the same way that the original Godfather was, and. Uh, it doesn't. Fl- here's the thing. Here's the thing that's sort of fascinating with me uh, for me about the. Um... Oh wait. Oh no. Here's the thing that's fascinating with uh, to me about the Godfather movies is that they're very prestige. They look fucking phenomenal, but they don't betray their pulpy origins. I mean, no, they do betray. They're, they're incredibly very fun. Yeah, there's it's it's high drama. Yes. And. Uh, because uh, movies like this can run the very real risk of being dour as shit. And, you know, they are sad, but they're sad in the way that, like, and I don't mean to, like, I mean, take this for what it's worth or whatever, but it's like, the stakes are super high. It's very, it's very operatic. Absolutely. and But it's operatic in a way where you don't take it seriously, if that makes sense. I mean, I mean you, t- you take it as seriously as the movie needs you to take it, but it's never... Even when it's tragic, it never feels like, or at least I wasn't particularly emotionally like, oh, devastated. It's like, oh, this is this is opera. This is melodrama in a way. Yeah, it's kind of melodrama. There's like a, it's like, it's like, ah, uh, man. At the at the risk of it's uh, at the risk of like, it's like male melodrama. It's like melodrama that's okay for dudes to like. Yes, because I think. I think I said this in I said this in my um, my little letterbox capsule for Godfather Part Two is like this is part of the cycle of movies that dipshits things are think are aspirational. Yeah, like there's it, this Scarface, Godfather, Scarface, and those are the big three, obviously. Uh, fi- but, Fight Club's fighting in to be there. Uh, th- th- it's part of like the dorm room canon. Yeah, if you had like a a, a Venn diagram of the dorm room canon. Movies dipshits thinks are as- think are aspirational and hot couch guy movies. <laughs> There's a lot of overlap there. Godfather part th- part two is smack dab in the middle of that because I when I went to when I was doing my BA I lived in the dorms and I was across from a guy who's uh, who's only like his name he was French his name was Ludovic <laughs> and the only thing I would God ever see damn. him do the only thing I would ever see him do is play the Godfather video game. And exclaim how awesome it was because he would play it because he would play it with the door open because you know who gives a shit I don't know it's just what he did it was just his vibe I mean, that's a hell of a vibe like uh, shout out to Ludovic for yeah. that <laughs> I have no idea where that man is now he's probably still there still playing the Godfather video game which is still fine studying, for, the, for the record it's totally fine it's wild that they made a Godfather video game that's kind of my favorite part of it more so than the yeah, game and- but. But they made it, didn't they make it in like 2007 or some shit? 2006, yes. There's an go. open world adventure game. It's kind of like, uh, what do you call it? It's like GTA, but it's the Godfather. Oh, uh, <laughs> that sentence makes me sad. <laughs> art. Oh, man. You heard of it? It's great. Art. People love art. <laughs> some art is good and some art is bad. Um, 
So, I mean, again, this is one of the we're covering a lot God, of like true imagine like canon classics. you're James Conn or you're Robert Duvall and you go back and voice your iconic roles as Sonny Corleone and Tom Hagen in the Godfather video game. Assuming <laughs> probably because your grandchildren want to see you in something and they're not going to go fucking watch movies. They're not nerds. <laughs> probably kind of a nice check, too. Yeah, that's true. Because oh, James re- Conn. It- <sighs> no, go ahead. The game officially premiered in February 20- in February 10th in a red carpet event held in Little Italy with James Conn, Robert Duvall, uh, and Johnny Martino in attendance. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. That's embarrassing. Um, this, is, this is a rough so- Wikipedia page to read. The Godfather video game Wikipedia page? Yeah, I would not recommend it. Mm. What I would recommend is you sit down and watch Godfather Part 2, because it's fucking awesome. It's, again, shout out to everyone acting their ass off. There's like, there's some, there's there's like like a couple of snags that, like, like a lot of the De Niro stuff could have been edited down. Yeah, I think that, I think. (laughs) We don't need the Don Vito origin story, really. Like if you didn't have that, I don't, I don't think it would have really mattered in the grand scheme of the pictures. Like all, all. Can you imagine? Together. Could you imagine just Godfather two, one hundred minutes, and it's just the Pacino stuff? It's the best stuff in the movie. I would actually kind of love that. But I mean, I understand in the grand context why you want to have yeah. all of it, and like if you're gonna make an epic, might as well make an epic. But yeah, cause yeah, cause. Because because uh, when this, when they show this on cable, they usually put one and two together, and they just run it as like a five hour movie, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, th- there I get it, and we're gonna get to Kill Bill, and that that's another like three and a half hour behemoth that they just show as one thing. Yeah, and I think that but- the separation, like watching just Godfather Part Two and not watching Godfather before it, like we did to for this podcast, is. Reminded me how there's a lot of things in Godfather Part Two that work really well in the context of both of them, but as a standalone movie, is kind yeah. of just not wonderful. Yeah, the, like 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 De Niro's kind of like Don Corleone rasp is a little cute. Yeah, a little bit. It's like <sighs> it's very much like this is this is going to be a mean thing to say. I don't I don't mean it as mean as it's going to sound, but I already started doing it. It reminds me a lot of um, Val Kilmer uh, in. Uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau, where he's doing his best Brando <laughs> impression. It's it's something. You think they talked about that shit in Heat when they were doing Heat together, De Niro and, <laughs> and Kilmer? Like, fuck, remember remember that? Remember when we were both remember in the- movies? Uh, remember when I was in a movie with Marlon Brando and everyone fucking hated it? Remember when you were in one and everyone loved it? That was weird. But he wasn't in it. He played him. No, 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 no. Oh, oh hold on. Are you not... Marlon Brando is in the 1996 Island of Dr. Moreau. No, no, he's not in... No, uh, De Niro's not in the first Godfather. Yes, okay, sorry. I I, I was doing the thing no. where I combine the movies together in my head. I would want to see that movie. Oh, God. Imagine the Island of... What if... Okay, here. Alternate head canon. Um, sure. That's... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Don never actually dies. He actually just goes to the Island of Dr. Moreau. And it picks up from there. The Island of Don Corleone? Yeah. Great movie. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. I don't know if Dr. Moreau is an incredibly underrated movie. And I'm not just saying that because I am the world's biggest Richard Stanley fan. Richard Stanley. Oops. Now we have to end this podcast. <laughs> that well, was just Should we talk about Perfect Blue? I feel like we've said everything there is to say about The Godfather Part 2. Yeah, The Godfather Part 2. What else is there to fucking say? I mean, it's fucking awesome. Now, here's the thing, though. Here is the fucking thing. Yes. I think 
that Godfather Part Two is probably one of the best, one of the best, um, one of the best movies of the seventies. Certainly part of that Coppola God run in the nineteen seventies. But I think Perfect Blue is one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> oh, I hundred, I hundred percent agree. Like, and, not, sorry to like spoil it before we talk a lot about Perfect Blue, but I, uh, yeah. The thing, the thing with Perfect, the thing with animation, no, we're, we're talking about the thing later. Yes, we are talking about. But up, but up, but But yes, yeah. Perfect Blue. So the thing with animation is that I made a crack about this on the on, on like Twitter or something. It's like animation is the greatest special effect there is because you can make it do anything the limit is your imagination like even the most sort of technically competent uh directors will have to compromise somewhat because of like physics yes even mike even michael mann will have to be like okay well i can't change i can't do this thing because that would mean bending the laws of space and time we'll settle for this you don't have that limit in the field of animation. I mean, to take like and- literally an example from the thing, like uh, the I think the thing has the greatest like physical special effects ever done. Um, That's uh, it's up there. And there, no matter how much you paid Rob Bottom, no matter how much time you gave him, there are certain things he just can't do. But like Satoshi like Kon f- can do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, because the only limit in animation, like here's here's a little secret. For those who, for those of you out there in podcast land that don't necessarily know me or Isabel or, uh, well, or or any of our particular sort of cinephilic proclivities, we really like animation. We do like animation is like even now I think is like when we're when we're talking about some of the greatest films ever made, the amount of films that are animated that get in the conversation is not nearly near the amount that it should be. No, it's it's still in my just from my own experience. It seems like it's still thought it was like a kid thing, and still thought it was well. Those aren't real movies. Those aren't like actual great movies. You can't just the same way you can't say that a comedy is one of the greatest films of all time. You're not allowed to say a animated film is one of the greatest films of all time unless it's like two or three specially selected Disney ones that everyone agrees on. And out of Madhouse Studios comes Satoshi Motherfucking Khan <laughs> out of the fucking gate with literally one of the best movies of all time. Yes. Um, and just, I want to say off the bat, I think Satoshi Kon is actually probably the, this is going to be bold, but I'm going to say it because that's what we do on this podcast. We make bold claims. I you think, make bold claims. Uh, you do sometimes too, Derek. I think. I, mean, we, I guess I just did make, make one, right? You did. <laughs> um, but I think that Satoshi Kon is probably, if not the greatest editor in film, the second greatest. He has, and this is the advantage that being an animator provides to you. Certainly. Is that your like your pool of like match cuts and things that can be in the is frame together as complete and how as you could ever want it to be is infinite the only limit is yourself and thankfully um uh, satoshi khan had and his team of animators had a very clear idea of what they wanted to do yes and what they wanted to do was this kind of like hitchcockian like doubling thriller with a little bit of a little bit of bergman and a little bit of argento and and it's it, it fucking owns bones. Yeah. So it, what is perfect? What is perfect blue about? So perfect blue is about a um a pop idol um from the J-pop group Cham. I think it's what they called Cham. And she yes. wants to be a actress instead of being a uh, pop idol. So she sure. becomes an actress. Um, she takes a role. She starts getting further into there. 
And her, long story short, her sense of reality and what she's done and what she hasn't done begin to break down. And there's also someone who seems to be emulating her, doing things in her name that she didn't think she did. And there's also a stalker slash super fan that is very mad that she is no longer a pop idol. Yes, this movie, among other things, is very perceptive and about about yes, fame and fandom and sort of the 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 rigors of being a working performer, but also just the horseshit that like female artists have to go through. Yeah, and I think that I mean. Uh, we're, we'll probably have to put a content warning spoiler here because I'm going to talk about some uh, pretty intense stuff right here. But I think we have to. Oh, that's really... a good call. I'm gonna write that down. Yeah. Um, uh, I, there's some stuff I really want to talk about in regards to this movie that I have to uh, talk about in order to get to to what we want to get at. I guess. So right. the thing that I found so astonishing watching this time is because um, Perfect Blue is always like my third favorite of uh, Satoshi Kon's movies. Whereas, like, my first favorite is Millennium Actress, my second favorite is Paprika, and I thought Perfect Blue was an incredible piece of craft, but it didn't have the same emotional affect and emotional weight. I was wrong, um, and specifically, I was wrong in – I didn't give enough credit to how Khan presents um, the – like you said, the, the, the specific bullshit that female performers have to go through, and also the after effects of sexual trauma and the after effects of – um, being seen as a sexual object because it's it all kind of starts uh, well, obviously starts when she's a pop idol, but it sure. starts quote unquote when she does a rape scene for her um for a performance. Yes, and here's here's the weird like one of the one of the things about this is that even though the movie takes great pains, this is still early enough in the movie that the sort of this is the uh, the melding of reality and imagination isn't like locked in yet. Mm-hmm. Like it takes great pains to go okay, so they want you to do this scene. I'm going to do this scene because I want to, uh, it'll be kind of like, you know, it'll be good for the craft, the staging of the scene, the calling of action, the doing of the scene, the interruption, the middle, yes, the, the interruption, interruption of, the of the scene. And one of my fucking favorite parts of that is when the actor doing the, the aggressing just kind of leans over and says, I'm so sorry. And then they start doing the thing again. And it's like, Jesus, fuck. It's some intense shit. Yeah. And when they... When they sh- go back to the scene after uh, shooting the scene after that break in the middle, yeah. it's it begins to be shot as if we're seeing what it would look like in the movie or look like in the TV show. Yes, and it looks like a real, like an actual uh, sexual assault and rape. Sure, and because of like, and then then from there we move into. I want to talk about that a little more in a second, especially like how I connected with it, but also then we move from there into. She does a photo shoot with a photographer who's well known for getting women out of their clothes. Sure. And then, uh, like these things keep kind of st- stacking up until you just see there's this intense weight of sexual aggression on her, even if she was never literally raped. Right. There's still this intense pressure of sexual aggression, sexual uh, sexual harassment, and sexual assault that she's kind of expected to deal with as part of being an actress and part of being a woman in this industry. That is, I didn't expect it to hit me as hard as it did. Um, but it really did, and uh, especially the the rape scene and afterwards, because um, very rarely do male directors get this right. <laughs> like as someone who's watched a lot of movies that have a lot of rapes, because I guess that's just the default plot point, and no one knows how to do anything else. Genre baby. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like fictionalized depictions of rapes, and this is one of the only two, along with Miss Forty Five, where I'd say that a male director actually hit it and did and was able to create a portrait that 
myself as someone who has survived sexual assault saw as realistic and saw as resonant and powerful and not exploitative. And I think one of the reasons it's not exploitative is because he takes so much time with her and to see her. The fact that Satoshi Kon takes it seriously enough to know that this wasn't literally a rape, but it still is traumatic and it still is incredibly difficult for her to get past. And it makes her feel dirty. It makes her feel um, like defiled, essentially, or like, like that she's no longer pure or good. And those are all yeah, feelings. What's the, what? Uh, let me actually. What's the quote in the movie? Pull it up um, because I, I had it in my letterbox. The thing she says, at least I'm. This might be slightly different in the. Uh, I watched the dub because I w- had to do a lot of things while I was doing it. But she says, "I'm not tarnished. I'm not filthy." There you go. While a specter of herself is saying that she is, which is <laughs> heavy as shit, but it also it's gnarly. It works so well, and it doesn't read as it doesn't read as corny or cheesy or like oh I read about how people deal with sexual assault once. It feels very lived in and very genuinely honest and tender and empathetic in a way that I didn't remember it being. And like I thought about it like for the rest of the day. I don't I didn't get triggered from it. I hate to use that word is such a bad connotation now, but I'm using it in the actual correct way. In the actual correct way. Actual correct. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get triggered by it, but I did. It did make me think about my own experiences. It did make me kind of reflect on the ways that I dealt with those and see, I saw myself so much in, in the film. And that's a real testament to how well he portrays that. It's so telling because, because there's that whole preamble to it, to, like towards it. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate any of it. Not before, not during, and really not after. It, 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 it packs a wallop. It is devastating as it should be. Yeah. Um, so, Perfect Blue. <laughs> is there anything else we want to um, get into uh, with it? I mean, we'll, we'll have a lot more to say later, obviously. Uh, um, uh, picking nits. Just a couple of nits. Um, uh, like, did, like did, did, I mean, did they have to make the stalker guy look like that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. <laughs> that's, that's the one thing that when watching it, I was like, yeah, that's the one thing I wish that they didn't do. <laughs> I mean, did, did they did they have to draw the assistant in such a way that sort of makes it visually rhyme with that person, especially in the eyes? Apparently, they did. I guess so. So we come at a crossroads: one movie that is very good, and one movie that we are in agreement is one of the greatest films ever made. <laughs> what a crossroads! How, however, we would choose, Derek. Well, because here's the thing: we were talking about received wisdom uh, uh, earlier in the show. Received wisdom. The conventional conventional knowledge dictates that uh, that Godfather Two should should win this pretty handily, but I don't think it does. No, I agree. I think Perfect Blue is a pretty easy one for me to move forward. I think there are not going to say to that Godfather a... Part Two is bad in any way. No. <laughs> we we just no, no, praised no, it up and movie. down a second ago. But... but I think like there's a lot. Well, it's kind of like we were, what you, you were talking about earlier. It's like there's going to be a lot of 45-year-old dudes who are going to be like, what, Godfather 2 loses to a fucking cartoon? If you have not watched Perfect Blue, I assure you, you will have an experience with it. Yes. I don't um, think there's a lot of like 45-year-old guys listening to our podcast. I don't think so. I don't think so. We don't have numbers on that, but I don't think that's the case. But uh, yeah, so here's the special thing. The, the rules of our show dictate that if... If we ever come to like an impasse between a movie that's on the list and one of our ringers, the the you the MDB movie automatically goes on. The only mm-hmm. way for a ringer to go on is if we both agree, and we both agree this time. So congratulations, Perfect Blue. 
you get to face Chinatown in round two. <laughs> what a fucking oh, matchup. Wow. Oh, God. I don't even <laughs> want to think about it. That's like, I literally have both those movies listed as five-star movies. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. Uh, but we have some time until we get there. And why is that, Derek? Why, do we have more time than usual, maybe, than people would originally think? I'm trying to set well, this up, but I didn't set it up very well, but I think you know what I'm going for. Yes. So uh, our next episode is going to be kind of a, uh, a kind of a mini-sode. We're going to do kind of a State of the Union, of uh, a State of the Podcast, if you will. Excuse me. We're going to go through. Um, we're going to go through some fun superlatives about the first thirty-two movies that we've covered. Uh, maybe even make some predictions. Who knows? And also, it's going to be a, a kind of a signpost episode, so that if people kind of jump in, like if we're like deep in round three and people want to jump in, they can kind of like listen to these signpost episodes and be like, okay, so this is where they were twenty-five percent up round one. So yes. we're going to have our our. our um, our one quarter of the way up the bracket spectacular. We will find a better name for it, I swear. And coming out, uh, coming out as our next episode. And for those people, we'll also do just a very, very quick, not even, not like in discussion, just a quick recap of what's won so far. Yes, we're gonna do basically a setup of what is in round two so far. Yes. Um, and then after that, we're going to go back to our regular format. Uh, we're going to be covering, uh, we're going to be covering two brand new matchups. The first group of matchups in the second quarter of our uh, of our bracket. Well, for round one, anyway, which also means that I personally will not feel so bad about using a veto. <laughs> so now there's this whole pod, and I don't know what the hell I'd be using it on. Looking at these, I don't know what you would choose to use it, but we'll see. It's like, I don't know, like, like just scanning it real quick. I don't know if like any of these movies are like, like, I don't know if any of these are like close enough to be like. You could spite you could spite me by moving them forward three billboards. I mean, I mean, we'll get to t- we'll talk about three billboards in due time. It's like I thought that or movie. Was, maybe you want to completely was, disrupt all predictions we've made and force Finding Nemo forward instead of two thousand one. See, I'm not that much of a sadist though. Well, fair, I think, also, I think that's, w- that's that's the best picture movie for what it's worth. But we'll get there. We will get there. Uh, so, but I think that's it for for uh, for this episode. I think we've just got plugs left to do. Yeah. Um. So, to recap, uh, Chinatown versus Perfect Blue in round two. Very much looking forward to that. It's going to be a hell of a matchup. Uh. So, if you want to, if for if you want to yell at us for like for for uh for eliminating Godfather Part Two in round one. Against a fucking cartoon? Are you serious? <laughs> you can always drop us a you can drop us a, a line at middlebrowmadness at gmail uh, We are also still soliciting recipes, uh, vegan preferable, and uh, what was the other thing we were soliciting? What? Oh, uh, wait, wait. I I'm asked. I was reading something, so I zoned out. I don't know what the fuck you just said at all. What are we soliciting for uh, in the email other than um, uh, recipes? Recipes, and I think I thought that's it. Oh, oh, uh, any in- insight into Bollywood films? Oh yeah, insight into Bollywood films and maybe opinions re uh, the conquest of Britain by the Romans. Yes, yes, we, we we want this to be a multicultural podcast instead of just two, oh what introduce <laughs> two white people talking about their assumptions of things. Yeah, I mean we we, we can guess, but guesses are often wrong. Yes. Um, if you want to tell us to our face that we're wrong, uh, well, our virtual face that is, you can always contact us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Derek underscore G Isabel is at Space Jam fan. Uh, you can also, uh, 
I guess follow us on Letterboxd if you're into that kind of thing. I'm also there at Derek underscore G across platforms, baby. And uh, Isabel's there at The Trap's Jaw. Um, you can find this episode and every other episode of the show and a lot of other episodes of other shows on noisespace.xyz. That is our podcast network. Uh, maybe you've heard of Henry Kissinger's Pokemon Going to Die. Maybe you haven't. Uh, you know, it's our buddy Matt who runs the who runs the operation. Uh, shout out to Matt. And uh, fuck, what else is there? Uh, yeah, rate us five stars on iTunes. We are so small that it would well, go to a be long fair, way towards rate me. whatever you feel is fair. But I I feel yeah. we're a five star podcast. I mean, yes. Well, I am I am biased. Give give us like, a star would... for every time we've talked about dicks. Yes. So or like cum. we're a sixty four star podcast or something. Exactly. Like, I would probably give us a four star. <laughs> wow. This is a podcast that you host, Derek. Yeah, I'd no, give us five I don't know stars because I believe in us. I believe in us. I care. Uh, I I think that we're probably the greatest podcast in history. <laughs> I we're, believe in this pod, goats. but I don't believe. Greatest of all I time. believe in this. Fuck the McElroy brothers. We're the best podcasters. That's not do, true at do, all. Do you want to call out the fucking McElroy hive? <laughs> Do you want to do that? Um, if it gets us it some attention, sure. It will get sure. to them. It oh, will no. get to them. They should. Hey, um, Griffin, come on. We'll have you on the podcast, and Justin, and Travis too. We'll have all three of you. You know what? You don't what, get what's what? What's Clint doing? We can probably spend some time with Clint. You know what? I think we could probably swing Clint. I don't know if we can swing the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, Clint McElroy, if you're listening, please get in contact with us. We'd love to have you, you on a special episode. Yes, we won't, won't be mean about your uh, about your sons anymore. I promise. You won't get a vote, but you will get an opinion, which is all we can ask for in this crazy mixed up world. Anyways, I guess so. it's time for us to leave, isn't it? Because we have I guess more podcasts to record today. I'm, I'm we got sweating. two more of these to do. So I've been Isabel Arf, <laughs> and I've been Derek Godding. Have movies be jolly. Have movies be jolly. Good night, everyone. Good night.